Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the HRW Shift podcast series. This is podcast number 21, and today we are talking about idioms. And on today's podcast, we have some of our regulars, Emma, Rhiannon, and Jen. Hi, everyone. Hi, everyone. This is Emma. Some of our listeners may remember from a few podcasts ago when Jen and I were talking about uh, linguistics, that I have a background in psycholinguistics and discourse analysis. So thinking a lot about our metaphorical use of language. So I'm quite excited today to talk about idioms with all of you. Hi, everyone. I'm Jen. As Emma just mentioned, I was happy to join the podcast before when we spoke about linguistics. I have a background in linguistics as well as in certain languages, French, Chinese, German, Dutch. So I'm very excited to be able to chat a little bit about idioms within English and across languages as well. And I'm Rhiannon. I've got a background in social cognition. So that's how combination of social psychology, so how the environment influences us in cognitive psychology, so the mechanisms behind how we make decisions. And uh, I just have a love of language and expressions generally. So uh, I think I've got a, a large enough collection that I could probably write a book on different idioms and the biases they relate to. So that's why I'm here today and I'm very much looking forward to, to chatting with you all about it. I can confirm you have enough knowledge to write a really big book (laughs) and I'd love to read it. Thanks, Ariane. Really nice having you back to chat about this super interesting topic and ubiquitous, I might say, because we find idioms in just all over the world. Just a bit on how we chose this topic. I think, Rihanna, we were having a chat one day about idioms, right? As we do. Yeah, I think I think we were having a chat about it. And we were talking about how actually when we're presenting debriefs, we really ought to try to avoid using idioms because they're not all universal. They don't always translate literally. And so because that can introduce variance in how things are interpreted uh, by others, it, it's probably best to avoid them. But uh, that got me thinking about how we use so much of them in our everyday life. Yeah, they're definitely a ubiquitous part of our language. Although now that I'm thinking about it a bit more, I'm not sure I'm totally clear on what the difference is between an expression and an idiom. I don't know, Jen, if you might be able to give us some, some more specific yeah. definitions. Sure, yeah. And this comes from a combination of an academic perspective, as well as my own lived experience using expressions and idioms across a couple of different languages, both native languages and learned languages. And the key difference is that idioms require the use of words that together otherwise wouldn't necessarily make sense or make sense in that context. Whereas an expression um, is kind of just a group of words that are contextually logical or appropriate, been used so much, it's become so socially familiar, so, so commonly used, so popular that it just becomes an expression. Those words can be taken away from that expression in that context and still make sense. Whereas with an idiom, you're referring to something outside of just that context or that dialogue itself. You're referring to typically to like a cultural reference or something where the words to someone who doesn't speak that language at all and they're just translating those words, it makes no sense at all. It's a bit like a compound verb, isn't it? So a verb is a doing word, but sometimes when you have two words together, it can change the meaning of those two words. So if you had the turn of phrase you say my my car broke down hope that doesn't happen but it's pretty common but if we think about those two words in isolation broke is basically the past tense of break so separating something into multiple pieces and down is direction directional it's from high to low 
that if you say broke down together, that meaning changes and it means that your car is no longer functioning. And that's kind of the, the nuance that you're getting out of the gen. So it's the difference between something meaning something that face value and you can interpret it literally to something that actually evolves to mean something else. And typically, just to add on that, usually an idiom kind of elicits its own its own image, its own imagery, more so than just being words put together that wouldn't necessarily go in that context otherwise, but it elicits an actual situation or an image. For example, um, in French, when I was living in France, in Paris, I heard someone talking about talking with a friend and they said, eh, je suis tombé dans les pommes, and tombé dans les pommes means literally in English, fall in apples, fall in the apples. And I had never heard this, this idiom. And I was like, I don't, what, huh? You fell in a crate of apples, but it means that they fainted. So they had been speaking about, you know, they had been having a really long day and some, some shock had come to them. So it's kind of beyond just maybe our use of prepositions and, and words that don't seem to go in a sentence, but really eliciting a reference to another situation or an image, such as falling in apples. Someone in France at some point fainted into the apples and, you know, that's <laughs> where it came from. Yeah, and you can see how it's trying to learn a foreign language, how you can get into sticky situations because you don't understand uh, the idiom behind the, what we are literally translating from those words. This reminds me of, um, so I spent some of my childhood in Germany and I speak some German, but I also encountered a confusing idiom when I was there of um, what they say is, wir haben Tomaten auf den Augen, which literally translates to, we have tomatoes on our eyes, which means when you're blinded to something that other people can see. So if you're thinking about um, behavioral science, it would be, for example, if you were biased not to be able to spot something, but everyone else around you was able to spot that thing. But the imagery there is of having tomatoes on your eyes, and it makes <laughs> it makes no sense unless you understand the what that is metaphorically referring to it would be very difficult to interpret otherwise that's very cool as well because in english we say to pull the wool over someone's eyes over one's eyes so it's interesting maybe it tells us a bit about the culture the idiom stems from when we use different words different idioms to describe the same thing what i love on that topic too is that for example to pull the wool over someone's eyes and tomatoes to have tomatoes in the eyes they don't necessarily mean exactly the same thing but it really shows across cultures the, the significance and the role of something like the eyes and what that plays and how we are perceiving our relationship with others and what's going on around us. And so although maybe it's not used in the same way, idioms to do with eyes can be found, I'm sure, in nearly every culture and language out there. Yeah, and I think that's, you're so on the money there, Jen. And, and I think that's actually one of the things that I find so appealing about them is that idioms are actually gateways to biases. Um, so they're really their layperson's observations of behavioural patterns that we're all aware of, but perhaps we don't notice them because we become habituated to them. They're very familiar, so we don't see them anymore. Um, and what I've actually found is that, generally speaking, all of us, like not just us behavioural scientists, but absolutely everyone, are more, is more attuned to behavioural biases than we realise because of these expressions. So when you excuse me, because of these idioms, <laughs> should get that one right. And so when this is used, when you hear an idiom being used, it can often be like a signpost 
um, indicating that there's a behavioural pattern going on there. You're absolutely right that uh, we may be aware of more biases than we actually think because we are just surrounded by idioms that we use on a day-to-day basis. And on that uh, note, shall we invite you, the audience, to a little exercise with us? We'll define a bias for you and then we'll let you take a guess of what idiom might describe that bias. And maybe if you speak multiple languages, you could think of whether there are different ways, different idioms in those different languages that describe the same bias. And uh, let's see what you come up with. And uh, let's see what, what we come up with as well and how that relates to situations that we've seen in market research. Uh, yeah, so there's one bias, the scarcity effect, where we value something more because it's rare. If we think about diamonds, for example, they are really highly prized and that's because of their rarity. And also if we think back to the beginning of of lockdown number one, there was a crazy shortage of toilet roll because it had suddenly become the thing that everyone needed and it became scarce. And the more scarce it became, the more it flew off the shelves as soon as it arrived. So it increased that value. Um, And one idiom that uh, represents that um, would be absence makes the heart grow fonder. So when something is not available, you desire it more. I'm going to give you your first question now, John Ron. There's the status quo bias. So the status quo bias is a desire to keep things as they are and to not change them. So what uh, idioms do you have in your language, possibly other languages that might represent that? So there's certainly a couple that come to mind in English. Actually, there's there's one that I heard very recently in, a, in an interview in market research, and that's don't rock the boat. So one of the things we hear is that if a patient is stable on a particular treatment plan, particularly in mental health, where it, it can have significant consequences if someone doesn't get on well with their medication, we do hear that sort of, oh, well, it's, a, it's nice and principle, but I wouldn't want to rock the boat if they're stable. What about you, Emma? Any biases that come to mind? Yes, one of my um, favourite biases that comes up particularly amongst um, patients or when we're doing patient research is the ostrich effect. Um, So the ostrich effect is when we avoid or deny information that's scary or unpleasant, even if it's information that we that we really need. So there's a great idiom that represents this, and there's a hint already in the name of the bias ostrich effect. So have a think about what, what that could be. Okay, ding, ding, ding. Those of you who thought that it was don't bury your head in the sand, that is the matching idiom for the ostrich effect. Yeah, and we see a flurry of other idioms that connect to biases. There are a couple that we tend to see in uh, in specific conditions. So the idioms are you reap what you sow or what goes around comes around. And we see these in conditions where uh, ACPs may tend to place the blame for treatment failure on patients, uh, conditions such as obesity, diabetes, COPD. These are also conditions where uh, symptoms are not so easily noticeable. They're not very clear. And so it's more difficult for ACP to notice the effect of the changes they make when they treat those patients. So then uh, sometimes they they might blame it on the patient. This has made me think of uh, a very work example. Has any one of you heard of the Unabomber? I don't think so. Have you heard of the idiom, you can't have your cake and eat it? That I have definitely heard of. (laughs) It's a good one. And when I first heard it, I thought, well, why not? Because I'm having it and then I'm going to eat it. And there's a bit of a clue here as to how it started. So obviously you can have some cake and then eat it. But the original idiom was you can't eat your cake and have it. Because of course, once you eat it, you can't have it anymore because it's gone. It means you can't have 
two things at the same time, so you have to compromise. And this started a few hundred years ago. And going to, to modern days, there was one particular person who really wanted to get it right. So instead of saying, you can't have your cake and eat it like we normally do nowadays, he said, you can't eat your cake and have it. Except this person was sending around thread messages and bombs in the mail across the US. And his brother, actually, I think, his brother noted that was quite odd. And that was something that their mom actually insisted on them getting right when they were kids, getting this idiom right. So then he reported this to the police and they managed to connect the, the bombing to the, the person that was sending the bombs, Theodor Kaczynski. I actually saw maybe the same documentary that you're referring to. I found that so interesting. Um, and also the, you know, the courage of the brother to, to kind of come forward. But just the fact that that language used was such a critical piece. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. I was just going to say um, sometimes the ostrich effect or burying your head in the sand also makes me kind of think a little bit of like out of sight, out of mind and how sometimes there's like a non-conscious actual effort to not have that issue or that topic be in your sight so to speak, to have it be something that we don't deal with or we, we kind of ignore so that then it doesn't come into our minds. Yeah, and that makes me think of one other idiom I'll cross this bridge when I come to it. Yeah. One of the things I love about the don't bury your head in the sand idiom is that ostriches do not bury their head in the sand. That's a myth. So the whole thing is on a, a misunderstanding of ostrich behavior. You find very fast, though. <laughs> one of the fastest land animals. Slightly different example, but one that's super interesting is rosy retrospection as a bias, it is such a well-understood concept that we actually have similar language for it in an idiomatic way of like looking through rose-tinted glasses or rose-tinted goggles. Mm. Uh, so palpable, so clear that the idiom and the, the common day language almost match. If you, if you were to imagine a culture that doesn't drive where no one in the country drives, and you start talking about like, you know, looking through your rear view mirror as a way of saying, you know, focus on the future, not on the past, people might not understand what you're trying to say because that concept of a rear view mirror is something that you're looking backward might not be there unless you're familiar with cars and driving. An important thing to remember here, just like in the gestures podcast that we had last month, is that these idioms are built on shared cultural knowledge. That piece is missing. Then we get to people wondering why French people fall when falling the apples or why German people have tomatoes in their eyes. A lot of the idioms we use though, if you can think of some very famous ones such as an apple a day keeps the doctor away. A lot of them rhyme and that's easier for us to remember, but it's interesting that they rhyme in multiple languages. So we've seen, we, we speak a few languages and we've we noticed this commonality that some idioms do rhyme and some of the most common ones are the ones that rhyme. And we know that from behavioral science because when things rhyme, we tend to give that piece of information a bit more way with we tend to think that that's more valuable. Yeah, absolutely. That, um... That actually ties into to one of my favourites, that one. So an, an apple a day keeps the doctor away, a well-known health-related uh, idiom. But uh, I think possibly one of the most impactful illustrations of the rhyme's reason effect shaping how things are perceived is actually if we think back to the O.J. Simpson trial. So Reiner's reason is essentially a completely irrational belief that we have, where we tend to give greater value and, and believe that statements that rhyme are more truthful and more important. Also, as illustrated, we remember them much more clearly. So with the O.J. Simpson trial, there was a glove that the assailant that murdered uh, Nicole Simpson, so O.J.'s ex-wife, was found on the property. And O.J. Simpson's legal counsel famously instructed the jury that if the glove 
does not fit, you must equip. Uh, and of course, we know how the trial went. So uh, it's a, a very sneaky bit of behavioural science. He slipped into the courtroom there. <laughs> Such an intense message. We also use idioms to explain more abstract ideas. So to make things more concrete. So for the audience, if you could think of, let's say, a pink flower and imagine yourself drawing it. And now if you could think of philosophy and imagine yourself drawing it. You can see that that's a much more difficult concept to hang on to and to draw and to concretize, to make tangible. And sometimes we try to overcome that by using idioms. So we can use a bird in hand is worth two in the bush to try to tell people not to give away what they currently have for some some future that may not be possible. Yeah, and it, it helps make these kinds of abstract ideas so much easier to explain and, and to convey your meaning to an audience. But to kind of loop back to what we talked about earlier, this is where we start to run into problems. Because idioms are based off this shared knowledge and this shared cultural agreement on what the meaning of those words put together in that order means if you're trying to communicate with people who don't have that shared meaning then you may be creating more confusion than you will be clarifying so I know I often described the risk aversion as the devil you know or our, our tendency to prefer the devil we know but that's a very kind of English rooted idiom that may not provide any additional clarification to people in the audience who who you know haven't grown up using that kind of phrasing. So there's a real balance there of whether your idioms are clarifying or confusing. Yeah, so we may end up deepening that uh, the abstraction of those ideas and making information even less less clear and less memorable. I heard one. Uh, you guys mentioned a, an interesting one, a fun one, the other day when we were talking. I think was it Rhiannon uh, when the cats away, the mice will play, and how that was different in German, and how that actually relates to Rhymer's reason. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. So when the cats away, the mice will play is the British version of that idiom. And then I had a friend who's bilingual told me that in German it translates to when the cats away, the mice will dance on the table, <laughs> which I really quite enjoyed, but. Uh, it transpires, as uh, Alex was alluding to, the reason that that change may have been made is because you have the alliteration in German, so those rhyme. And it's cool to see how it kept the rhyme in in English, in German. It's the same one in Romanian, actually, the mice dancing on the table. Are there any other ways that we um, build idioms apart from making rhymes? Well, so, yeah, basically the way that Chinese is, well, obviously I'm no native speaker and no absolute pro, but I did study Mandarin Chinese for a few years, um, and I did spend some time living in China as well. And so the way that it seems to me is that each character in Chinese is a word, and each character also has meanings of its own. And so any statement in Chinese is going to have character combinations that are sort of like idioms in that they either don't make sense on their own or that they could mean multiple things on their own. For example, like I remember I was there during the Olympics in 2008, and um, there was a really popular expression uh, that I heard a lot when, when talking to Chinese people about the Olympics, uh, and they would always, you know, say things like and is China. So that's not really part of it. But, um, but uh, literally means add oil. And what it means actually is like a cheer, like, woohoo, go China. For example, if you're a student, and you're studying really, really late at night, someone might say, oh, like you can do it, add oil. <laughs> well, and interestingly, um, even which means China, it literally translates to like middle country. Or they they say middle kingdom. So would yeah. add oil be a, an example of an idiom that came from an expression? 
So it's an expression because there are two words, right? But in this case, it's kind of an idiom because it's a bit more metaphorical. Yeah, I think that the point with Chinese, there are idioms, like actual idioms that are usually four to six characters, four to eight characters long. And they usually are very brief summaries of, of like a story or a fable. It's one of the things that's a kind of fun thing to consider is how much of our daily language is saturated with idioms or otherwise metaphorical language, including in business contexts. Even if you just think during the course of your day, how many times are you using phrases like, let's think outside the box, let's push the envelope, I can't see the wood for the trees, let's take it to the next level, I'll circle back to this. All of these are examples of idiomatic language that in many workplace environments really form the kind of bread and butter of how we work and how we communicate to each other and sometimes it can help but other times it can cause a hindrance it's often the case that we hide behind metaphorical language it allows us to maintain a level of vagueness while seeming like we're communicating and I do wonder sometimes when thinking about a phrase like let's take it to the next level there's a lot of vagueness in what that could look like but very commonplace in business language yeah very much so and actually I think as you pointed out, it kind of tickled me that you use the idiom bread and butter when you were giving an explanation of what that is. And that kind of is an indicator of just how tricky it can be to communicate without using idioms because we're just so habituated to them, we don't know we're doing it. I'd actually like to challenge our listeners to spend one entire day not using any idioms and then catch yourself and notice just how often we do it. You may find that you don't say anything at all. Yeah. <laughs> it's the only way to navigate the problem, isn't it? <laughs> but no, I think you're uh, you're definitely right there, what it hides and how it's used. And I think one of the, the other interesting things about how they're very wide open to misinterpretation I came from a project that I did a number of years ago, actually. So I was doing some patient experience research in relation to mental health, and I was reading through some patient accounts of their experiences when they've been hospitalised for psychiatric conditions. And one patient obtained her notes from that experience um, because she found it very challenging and she didn't feel that she was getting the support she needed. And when she read these notes, uh, she found that when she'd been talking to one of her therapists and they'd asked, oh, how are you doing today? And she said, oh, I'm feeling rotten. And the HCP had actually written down, literally, patient believes she is rotting from the inside out. And that was not at all what she meant. The entire meaning had just been completely pathologized. And that misunderstanding didn't arise from a language barrier. It became, it came from the anticipated ex- the expectation uh, almost that the the HCP was primed to think of the patient as having a medical condition and so interpreted any kind of language and behavior within that lens rather than taking it at the idiomatic air quotes face value and so that's kind of really quite powerful I think because that really shaped how her progress was being assessed and monitored and how you know she eventually was seen to be fit enough to be released so it's very tricky very tricky. Yeah, and this can be this can be very impactful and it can even deepen the condition that the HP was initially set to to uncover or to help diagnose or to help treat as well. 
I was just going to say it's actually an illustration of confirmation bias where the thinker thinks what the Kruger proves, you know, the, the HCP is expecting to see something in front of them. And so that is what they see. They see something that is pathologized rather than something that is an everyday expression of language. Yeah. How do you think we can uh, go around this? Would it be a case of educating the HCPs, drawing their attention to these situations? Yeah, I think so. I think it's just about like, exactly, exactly as you say, I think it's about ensuring that when physicians are practicing medicine that they're mindful of their own of their own lens that they're bringing to those conversations and those consultations and what their preconceived notions or ideas might do to the way that they interact with their patients and how those consultations take place and how productive and constructive they are. Yeah and this also brings to mind how important it is when designing discussion guides or other research materials to have them translated by competent translators they have cultural knowledge of how people communicate in in that country and also when uh, when keeping in mind moderating interviews to try as much as possible to use moderators from the local markets where we operate with that that have that shared knowledge in mind as well so they can be the link between the translation the materials what we want to obtain from the interview and what the uh, interviewee wants to transmit to us another uh, small uh, challenge for the audience if you're able to uh, translate an idiom from your language into another language so if you speak an language other than English, try to translate it or even put it through Google Translate. That might lead to some fun results and see the uh, extent to which mistranslations can occur. Yeah, I think that uh, cultural observation is quite an important one. It's uh, one of the things that we're always very mindful of here at HMW is that we use translators that are of native language or native proficiency and from those cultures that we're exploring because this is the difficulty that can arise with idiomatic phrasing and language. And I think Emma you're uh, well versed on on how different language can be framed and be interpreted in different ways so something around uncertainty another area where this topic is really important is when we do close linguistic analysis we do a bit of this um, at HRW within the shift team and we found that it's so important to have that kind of close linguistic analysis being done by native speakers because it can actually lead to misinterpretation. So for example, one of the things if I'm doing language analysis, one of the things I might be looking out for are signs of uncertainty or hesitancy about the subject matter. So in English, I'd be looking for use of the conditional tense. So saying things like this could work, but actually if I were to apply that same sort of sensitivity to the conditional tense to other languages, I might make a completely false interpretation. So in French and Spanish, they have a tense called the subjunctive, which is used to it's used to capture things that are conditional. So if you say, if I do this, then that will happen. They have our own tense to express that. So it's much more common to be speaking with that kind of conditional tense of subjunctive sentence formations in French, Spanish, Portuguese than it is in English. So it's important when we're doing close language analysis to make sure that our linguists really are familiar with the grammar of each of their languages and don't kind of fall into these red herring traps of misinterpreting the, the meaning behind the meaning of the language that's being used. Red herring, huh? Another idiom. They're all around. If I'm trying to analyze another language and I'm working off a translation and it's full of the conditional tense in English, I might be reading into that when actually it's a completely standard expression. So I think it shows how we're aware of these things and these tendencies, even if we don't know what they're called, and that when we encounter idioms 
being used in the audiences that we're researching. It can be a nice, very clear signpost that there's a kind of behavioural bias taking place, and that's something to pay attention to. And also kind of the point that both you, Emma and Jen, were making about the cultural dimension that idioms bring and how important it is to be mindful of that when conducting research and why having sort of people with native proficiency is essentially, it's essentially essential. <laughs> also, just to add on to that and to the prior point that you were making, just the fact that uh, being attuned to the use of idioms and, and what it can potentially imply is so important, particularly if we're, we're having, for example, patient research and it's in an area that is quite sensitive to the patient, they may end up using more idiomatic language as a way of trying to kind of like di- distance themselves or, or keep themselves a little bit less directly kind of in- involved in the conversation as a way of kind of protecting their emotions or making it easier for them to discuss. They may actually choose non-consciously choose to uh, to speak more idiomatically than they might otherwise. Excellent. So we've seen that uh, idioms are all around us wherever we go and that it's very important to keep an eye on them because they might indicate a behavioral bias at play. And especially in healthcare research, it's very important also to, to be mindful of them and to, and to keep in mind the fact that idioms are built on shared cultural knowledge. So whenever we can tap into that, either by using local translators, native translators, or moderators, or by keeping an eye on those idioms when doing linguistic analysis, it's always important to have them at the forefront of our minds because they might hide some golden nuggets of behavior. Thank you for listening to us, everyone. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Let us know what you thought of it and whether you'd like to share some thoughts, maybe how you see idioms in your day-to-day, in your business, how you see them at play, or whether you'd like to just share some idioms with us. But for now, it's goodbye from me, Alex. It's goodbye from me, Rihanna. Bye from me, Emma. And from me, Dan. Catch you on the flip side. Oh, very good. I was going to say so long and thanks for the fish. See you later, alligator. Alligator. (laughs) After a while, crocodile.